Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Matt Johnson. Matt is a husband, father to two little girls, and is an armchair student and, dare I say, teacher of theology living in Seattle. He's also a freelance writer and editor. Until recently, Matt spent seven years as an associate volunteer pastor in counseling and recovery ministry. He's also a great musician and has written a great book called Getting Jesus Wrong, Giving Up Spiritual Vitamins and Checklist Christianity. If you want to understand the basics of spirituality and the human condition, this is a great place to start. I give you Matt Johnson. I hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as I did. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, sir. You have written this great book, Getting Jesus Wrong, Giving Up Spiritual Vitamins and Checklist Christianity. But the weird thing is, when you're getting Jesus wrong, you think you get Jesus right, right? I mean, that's the weird right. dynamic yeah, exactly. of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a built-in problem there. When I uh, decided on the title with the publisher about five minutes later, I was like, dang it, I'm, I'm probably getting it wrong again. So I have to put a few little disclaimers in there along the way. Well, you should start like a blog or something like revising Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Or revising my Jesus. Or my, there you go. my constantly revolving Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say, um, I'll have to do a follow up called Getting Jesus Wronger. Yeah. I'll give it a couple of years. Man, what's interesting though is I think that like you you list like several Jesus in the book the life coach Jesus, the checklist Jesus, the movement leader Jesus, the visionary Jesus. I think these Jesus is like, do you feel like the burden of proof is on you? Because I think this, this is most of the Jesus is most people get in American church life. Like, I think, <laughs> right. I think you're actually offering a minority report Jesus. I mean, not played by Tom Cruise, but I mean, necessarily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, uh, I broke up with those versions and, uh, it didn't, it didn't end real well. So, um, yeah, maybe I'm just moving on to the next relationship. I don't know. In the beginning of the book, you talk about a, a, a phrase that you were exposed to in Luther's uh, 1518 Heidelberg Disputation that really shaped your thinking and feeling. And it's this, God's love does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. And you do have the caveat that you think that that sounds like Yoda talk, but but for, for you, that's a, a linchpin in the book. Why is that something that is, is a center of gravity that the whole journey that the book narrates revolves around? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think it's the whole idea of um, the evangelical vibe is all that you're doing for God, you know? And so it almost, you know, when we talk, you talk explicitly about your theology, you know, saved by grace alone. And most evangelicals are going to have a general sense of, of what that is, and they would agree with it. But sort of the—so there's like the explicit teaching, right, of, of what we believe about our faith, and then there's sort of the implied thing of, you know, in evangelical circles, it's all that you're doing for, for Jesus. You know, how, how are you kicking ass for, like, building the kingdom, you know? And for each one of those Jesuses that I go through, there's— there's an expectation for that, of how you should live and what, what it is that you're doing. And that phrase, um, yeah, it's, it's got that kind of uh, Yoda quality <laughs> to it. But it, uh, it really gets at the heart of 
God is doing something in us, um, even when we're not cooperating with him. And that's a huge comfort to me. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you talk about how in the book that some of these other visions of Jesus, ones that you for a season had passion in the midst of, but ultimately found less life-giving and actually death-dealing in other ways. <laughs> but right. they had kind of grace language in and around them. Like you talk about, uh, you talk about life coach Jesus sermons and they're sort of, it's not that there's no grace, but there's like, Hey, you got through this time, but now, now don't fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. Is it kind yeah. of like, is that, is that, is that the essence of life coach Jesus in some way? Oh yeah. I mean, it's that, it's sort of that idea of like, you know, I joke about how if you're performing well, you know, if you can think back to your days of high school sports or whatever, if you're performing well, like your, your coach is awesome. He's like your best friend, you know? And once you kind of hit your limit, like the coach is going to be your worst enemy. You know, he's going to make you run laps until you puke and you're going to hate your life. (laughs) And so I think like spiritually, you know, for me, once I kind of like hit a brick wall and I was like, wait a minute, um, all the promises that I got of how amazing the Christian life is, um, you know, even as like a 16 year old, it's like, this doesn't quite add up, you know? Um, so at some point, like all of the excitement kind of wears off and then I, and then you realize, oh, wow, I, I still, uh, have, ha, you know, I'm still a sinner. Like, how does this, how does this add up? And I think that's particularly indicative to more like holiness oriented movements, um, where there's a lot of guilt around that. And that was definitely true. Like in the first little, you know, the Pentecostal church that I came to, um, to faith in, um, that was definitely kind of the vibe there for sure. And then you kind of went from life coach Jesus, right? To you went, uh, you talk about getting a little more theological sophistication and that gave way to checklist Jesus. Yeah. Now, Checklist Jesus is a little more intellectual, right? Well, I don't know. I think it's maybe a version of Life Coach Jesus. It was sort of like, okay, now that you're on board, here's all the things that you need to do, you know? And so I joke about, um, I don't know how many people will remember this, but like the power team, you know, like here, here's the thing that's going to pump you up in your faith, you know, go to a power team event and watch some strong men rip some phone books in half and, you know, you're going to get all stoked up on your faith. And, uh, you know, there's one checklist item and, you know, and then there's the, uh, you know, you listen to the find your destiny tape series and you're going to get it all figured out and then you're going to do this and then you're going to get on the Bible reading plan. Um, so I don't know if it was necessarily more sophisticated. It was just sort of the list that was given, um, you know, once you sign the card and walk the aisle, it's like, okay, you know, what's the cost of membership here, you know? And it's, it comes in a lot of different forms, you know? But wasn't um, there I'd, kind of a more intellectual form? I mean, so at some point, maybe I'm just recalling your journey. I may, I may be mixing up parts of your journey, but like, it, it's, yeah. there are kind of, aren't there these kind of like the neo-reformed evangelical things can be checklist? It's, but it's like, have you read your Piper? Have you got your Calvinism yeah. down? I mean, it's, it's a, so one form is the kind of Hans and Franz, we're here to pump you up for Christ. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but yeah. then you kind of, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are in this thing in, in certain forms of pietism or also intellectual forms of, uh, a, a kind of where, where being a Christian becomes sort of mastery of a certain set of doctrinal constructions and your ability to kind of be fluent in them and, 
and, and be able to judge other people with them and, and, and oh for like sure <laughs> and he's like yeah. oh oh yeah and there's like those checklists and any try any any community that is super tribal i mean i think we're all tribal to a degree but um where there's sort of those boundary markers of what it means to belong you know so like you're saying like yeah you know you you agree with piper on all these points you know but you're not so like you know stiff collared that like you can't hang out at the, at the pub and drink a beer. And, you know, if you have a handled up bar mustache, like, you know, you get more points. So there's all the, all the checklists depending on, on the tribe you're part of, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so that gives way, you know, then there's, you talk about movement Jesus. Now this is, is this missional Jesus movement Jesus? Oh yeah, totally. It's like the sort of whole church planting, like bro Christianity kind of movement thing. <laughs> Spent a couple years there. Yeah, I had a friend who was, uh, who we were working together at church, and he said that we were reading actually some stuff from Tim Keller and I think John Golden Gay or something. And he said that he grew up pretty conservative. And he said, I realized I just switched legalisms. It's like my legalism isn't, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. And that makes me crazy. Now it's that like my legalism is, we got to go kick ass for Jesus and be on the mission of God, be on mission and be the hospitable, welcoming, open kingdom force for shalom in the city. And you just kick people's ass every week. Like, and, and <laughs> the, come, on, come on, man. Let's get on mission for Jesus. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do the Jesus Fight Club thing, right? Yeah, there's all, all the different boundary markers, you know, and uh, I think every community has a form of it, but, you know, some of them are, are – uh, kind of more reflexive or, um, I guess, judgy than others. And then you talk about visionary Jesus. And I love you have that Bonhoeffer quote from um, Life Together where he says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the oh, dreamer man. proud and pretentious, the man who fashions a vision, visionary ideal, the community demands it be realized by God, by others and himself. Um, and then he just talks about like how that, that person can kill the community uh, because nobody lives up to anybody's dreams. <laughs> Right. And often oh, yeah. these dreams are controlling uh, kind of self-justification, self-help projects to make us feel better about our lot in lives. And, and people can become the kind of casualties of our visions. Yeah, totally. Well, the problem is that if somebody has this strong visionary bent, they have this idea for the future of what the community is supposed to look like. But in inevitably, they're always going to be let down and the community is going to be let down too because um people can never fulfill that the vision of the reality itself it's like what real life and what real people are like in real time just doesn't add up with that so you either have an egotistical uh maybe narcissistic leader um that is going to chew people up and then he's going to blame he's going to blame people for not fulfilling the call or you're going to have a bunch of people that are burnt out and, uh, and stressed because they're under all this pressure to perform for the leader. You know, it's just a lose-lose all the way around. So you kind of – so it's, it's interesting. Really, you've only served like four false Jesuses. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't really that bad, I would guess. I mean, cause there's four <laughs> Gospels. So like there's, I guess there's four pictures of the authentic Jesus. And you have like the four horsemen of the inauthentic apocalypse of Jesus. <laughs> right. So could you say a little bit about your journey into a different relationship with Jesus and what kind of changed 
and it, it seems like a kind of light switch goes on and that sort of Heidelberg disputation quote about God's love creating, you know, what, what pleases it not going to what pleases it. Um, could you say a little bit about the journey to that place? Yeah, totally. I, I think the big picture thing and shift for me had to do with um, the light coming on where there's something that God has done objectively uh, in and through Christ that um, is true today and tomorrow and always, uh, and it doesn't depend on how I'm doing today or how I'm even feeling about it. Like that, that just was a huge change for me where, um, all these different communities that I'd been a part of and sort of the vibe and ethos of it was, what is it that you're doing? And, um, are you feeling great about it? You know? So like the, the Piper vibe of like, you must always be delighting in God. Um, and if you're not, you might want to second guess your salvation. I mean, that's, that's a lot of pressure, you know? And, uh, you know, if I'm honest, like I don't feel delighted every single day. Um, you don't, I don't, I don't surprise, surprise. Right. Um, so, you know, I took great comfort in the fact of like reading these stories about, you know, even about Luther where he like struggled and struggled. And before he came to these theological breakthroughs, he's even saying he hated God. He hated this idea, um, uh, of the righteousness of God. Um, but then he, he kind of pushes through and gets to the other side of it. And then he has that, that kind of light bulb moment of like the objective hope in Christ. It's not about the quality of our faith. It's, uh, you know, it's what's behind our faith. It's, it's actually Christ, you know, and that's where the hope is. It's sort of like, I heard a preacher saying once, um, where, you know, if like, if you're outside on a, a really sunny day, um, and you kind of look to the periphery and you see those weird little floaty things in your eyeball, you know, um, and you, st- and you start like kind of tracing those, um, like our, our sight is meant to focus on something, but we can get distracted really easily. It's not like our eyes are meant to focus on something specific, um, and have, a, a, so our faith has a content, right? It, it, that it's Christ and what he's done. Um, it's not, uh, what we're doing and we can, we can just get so easily sidetracked on, on other things. So it's just not, once I I realize it's not about the quality of my faith, like that's going to come and go, you know? Um, and then when Paul sounds all crazy in Romans seven, where he's, you know, he's all mixed up and he can't, he can't seem to do like what he's put his mind to. Um, uh, he has his good days and his bad days and he does what he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do what he wants to do. And realizing, you know, that's written in in the present tense, you know, present indicative. It's like if that's true of Paul, that's true of me too. So it's always going to be kind of a roller coaster day by day. Yeah. Do you think on some level, you know, that a lot, you know, Calvin talks about knowledge of God and knowledge of self as being, you know, like intertwined, and you can start either way. And if it's true knowledge of self, it leads you to God, vice versa. But do you think that that a lot of the sort of self-justification sort of emphasis on subjective realities actually leads to self-deception because or self-destruction because you know you can't measure up or you wind up just telling yourself you're something you're not or or sort of not actually looking at 
your real inner life or your soul or your emotions because if you look there and the cupboard is bare or you don't like what you find, then it's going to shipwreck your soul. Oh, yeah, totally. And there's that, you know, again, like if you go back to those kind of boundary markers or the checklist type stuff, when there are these high pressures of what it means to belong to a community, um, it's always going to breed uh, basically people hiding, you know, hiding from their true selves and the reality, uh, the reality of the world. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I believe in like having a really robust theology and maybe even ascribing to like a statement of faith or something, but, um, with the realization that like life is a mess sometimes and, uh, it sucks when you're in a community where you feel like you're having to hide all the time. Yeah, and you say actually Christ doesn't meet us in the mountaintops, but in our deaths. That Christ promises us in our final death that we'll inherit his resurrection life. And the foretaste of that, like I think a lot of people think of like the Arab, Paul talks about this word Arabon, like the spirit is the down payment on the future reality. And you seem to argue that the down payment is not so much in these moments where it's going great. It's in the moments where we experience little deaths in relationships to our jobs and our own personal struggles and finitude and fragility and fallenness that actually we, we, that's where the foretaste is in, in little deaths and resurrections, not on mountaintop experiences. Oh yeah, for sure. I love what Capon says about that. Uh, how do you say it? Capon or Capon? I don't know. Potato, potato. Uh, but he, he talks so much like in uh, one of the things that just blown my mind in recent years is is reading through um, Kingdom Grace and Judgment. And I would read that thing uh, like devotionally on the bus to work years ago with my highlighter. And he had he has these awesome um, kind of pictures of he talks so much about death and resurrection in that in that book and it's like it's one of the primary themes and he has this idea of um, oh there's this great quote I actually towards the end of the book where I said you know uh, where I quote him at length of, of him saying like if you're dead you're basically his you know you're God's cup of tea because that's something that he can work with, you know? And so when you're dead, you kind of have this open hand <laughs> and you're not, you know, you're not going to be like holding tightly to anything because you're dead and he can actually work with that, you know? And he gives these really great images of that. And of obviously nobody, it's not like anybody wants to like come around to that and, and have that feel, uh, that's not like a cozy truth of the Christian faith, right? Uh, but I think um, when somebody's really struggling or they sort of come to the end of themselves and are like, I'm a dead duck here. Like, I don't have anything left anymore. Um, but then to realize there's a hope of resurrection and then you finally give up. You know, I talk about these little D's of life too, you know, like if there's a relationship that goes goes south or – um, you know, you have to contend with, uh, sickness or, uh, you know, whatever it is. And you kind of come to the end of yourself, um, oftentimes on the other side of that, but we just have to, we have to wait for it. Yeah. It's almost like the art of living posthumously, right? Like yeah. you're, you're trying to figure out like that's, you know, I mean, there's a freedom to it, but it's getting to the other side, right? That's the hard mm-hmm. thing because people... You know, if there's any hope for resuscitation, people will take that of a resurrection most of the time. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep, that's the spiritual vitamins part, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's so much about metaphor, right? Are, are we dead or are we sick? Yeah, totally. You know I mean? Are, are we lost or are we just like... Um, are we lost capital L or just sort of lost little L? You just ask the right directions and we kind of get turned around and then are on our merry way, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, you, do you, are you in a church community now where these kind of, where this resonates i mean or or, or or do you have to be the fifth column i mean because again i do think in a lot of places what you're arguing for is is and I, I think i would say this sadly is probably a minority view yeah yeah i would say so you know i i went to you know i was a part of a huge uh mega church for it wasn't always a mega church but it um, got really big over about a 15 year period and then came crashing down and I was feeling really disillusioned and I'm like, I'm just going to go to a small church. Um, and I went to a little LCMS church down the street and that was great. Um, Lutheran uh, church, Missouri synod, right? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm getting my my Lutheran uh, acronym straight here. Yeah, totally. And that was, um, that was a great experience. You know, it was, it was totally different, way more liturgy. Um, I mean, man, when they would ask people up to the communion rail, I'd just ball because the pastors there were, you know, they were saying a blessing on each parishioner and, um, you know, putting their hands on their head and shoulder. And that was just something, um, that I hadn't experienced. And just that whole Lutheran idea of like, God is present um, through the sacraments, like very present. And I, that was so powerful to me. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't wind up there. I'm in a, a little, um, PCA church now sort of splitting the difference. Um, <laughs> my wife was, was a little bit miffed when they wouldn't commune us at the LCMS church. It's like, well, they have a pretty tidy, uh, statement of faith that you have to agree with. So, um, but what we did, What didn't you agree with on the statement of faith? Well, no, I, I think it was more just like, um, and they made it pretty clear there too. Like, if you haven't been catechized here, that you you can't you can't come up. They didn't say it. Can't you just take a terms. quiz? Like, just quiz me. Just give <laughs> yeah. me the quiz. Tell me what's the important answer. I'll pass it. Yeah, totally, totally. So I never, I, I didn't dare to go up, but um, yeah, you know, having to do with the real presence and stuff like that. And I'm totally down for that. But I kind of sensed that you know it was going to be a a 20 questions kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, we're at a PCA church now. It's great. Just a very kind community. Like the whole vibe is way, way slower, which has been really good for my soul. And, um, you know, they have a good rhythm of liturgy that I really appreciate. So that's been a, a really important palate cleanse, I think spiritually. Do you feel, do you feel like if a non Christian, I mean, People that are outside the church and, and and whether they're kind of post-Christian because they, they have sort of become immunized to Christianity through some kind of church experience or they're pre-Christian and that they didn't really – like how would you communicate – how would you keep them from the wrong Jesus? Like how do you – when you talk with people, how do you communicate in ways that uh, that speak to people – that don't have a lot of experience with Jesus and yet feel all the pressures of life and anxiety inducing realities that you talk about. Yeah. 
gosh, I don't, I don't know. I think it depends on the person and what they're facing. But, you know, for me, the discoveries I was making as I, you know, sort of post uh, disillusionment and, you know, still feeling a little disillusioned, but it's, it's that idea between, um, the, the, that Jesus is a savior. He's actually saving me. He's saving us from something. He's, he's renewing all things. Um, and it doesn't, it's not dependent on us. Like the weight isn't on us. Um, and that was what was, what was so huge about for me, um, uh, starting to understand a little bit more the distinction between law and gospel. You know, they both like everybody's under the law. And even if you're not, I mean, the Zolls have, they communicate it so well, you know, that there's, uh, uh, there are all these laws in life, even the little L laws of life. And it's just built into the fabric of the universe. You know, everybody understands that. Um, so wherever people are feeling the tension between is and ought. Yeah. That there is a pressure point that probably is where there is some anxiety insecurity, pain, guilt, shame, or a combination thereof. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where like the, the objective hope in Christ for me is such a, such a huge thing. It's, it's not, it's not ever changing. Like I might have a horrible day or a horrible week, month or year. Um, Hey, that sounds like a, that sounds like a theme song to to a sitcom. Uh, I didn't even know I had that in there. Um, but yeah, that's going to change all the time, but there's a constancy, uh, and what Christ has done. And, um, that's the kind of hope that I would want to get across to people. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like a lot of people that write in this venue, like that are actually trying to recover the, some of the great insights from the reformation, which are just really biblical insights, you know, think, uh, but through a certain lens, often it comes from the overchurched for the overchurched. Like, you know, I, I think of like p- people, um, you've got kind of like the unchurched in our culture, right? Who need mm. Jesus. Then you've got the overchurched who seem to need Jesus just as bad because they've been beaten up and burned out by pressure cooker religiosity and sp- checklist Christianity and the spiritual vitamins sort of piety. Mm-hmm. I wonder, like, it's interesting, like, I wonder if people, why more work isn't done with an eye towards the, the unchurched, the underchurched, you know, mm-hmm. not, not the, not the overchurched. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Do you mean like just in terms of evangelism and stuff or how do you mean? Yeah. I, I think that like people that write books or 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 spend a lot of time thinking about creatively about connecting people with the healing that can be found in Jesus oftentimes seem to be more into movement Jesus or life coach Jesus or what I mean I don't know why that is you know, like it, yeah. it, it's, you know, it, it seems to be people that are in, in sort of, and maybe they're not, maybe, maybe they're not writing that stuff either. I'm trying to think if they are or they aren't. Cause yeah, it's really interesting. Tim Keller 
he wrote this book called Making Sense of God. And I heard him interviewed. He said, well, the reason I wrote it is because I realized I, I wrote Reason for God. But the only people that ever read that were people that already believed. And we were looking for a little bit of reassurance. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I wanted to write a book that actually was targeted at people that didn't believe. Uh, that hmm. actually um, – I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's harder because it, it – I wonder if it, it's harder to get into the mindset um, – I don't know. That's just just something that came to the forefront of my mind. Is this, you know, that that this is very often. It seems like the sort of law gospel approach is so. It seems to me to be the most missiologically relevant thing because it's so universal in its scope as far as where it hits human need. You know, like if like psycholo- I think like. Uh, our own psychological makeup it just confirms the truth of this stuff you know um yeah well i I think so too yeah for sure yeah and then it's that it's the trick of of saying it persuasively um in a way that that people can understand in real life you know again i think the the zals have done great work on that that kind of stuff like how does this how does this work um, psychologically, like everybody knows this stuff to be true. Like if, if somebody comes up to you and, um, grabs you by the shirt collar and says, you must love me. And like, is demanding something of you, you're going to be like, well, yeah, I get it. Well, yeah, you know, of course, but like, you're going to feel anxious and you obviously you're not going to want to be loving towards that person, but you're going to understand the truth of what they're trying to get across. Um, and that's how, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the demands of the law work. You know, everybody understands that stuff. But the the freedom of the gospel, like that you get something for nothing in return, it just it doesn't compute. It's like a too good to be true kind of thing. And so much of the time our communities aren't that way at all. Um which I think is sad. Yeah, yeah. It seems like oftentimes that that the church reinforces a kind of pressure cooker mentality that people deal with Monday through Friday, nine to five and after nine and their families too, and their discretionary leisure time, whatever that oftentimes the church reinforces that kind of culture rather than offers relief in the midst of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think too, you know, just because of the way our culture is too, it's, we're always looking for the three easy steps to, to success, you know? And so if, if Christianity or a Christian worldview is sort of just put into that pot along with everything else, um, why would, why do people have a reason to choose that? It's like, well, I don't want to get up on Sunday. I don't want to be in community with these weird people that I don't know. Um, you know, I'll find my own spirituality and and pick up a self-help book instead. It's a lot easier. It's, there's going to be less heartache, you know? So I think we, you know, my hope is that we're telling a bigger story and actually giving people hope instead of just handing them, you know, that the idea of this checklist. Like, you know, here's what it is to be, to belong, and you check all these things off, and life is going to be awesome. And that's just not that's not reality. It's not that's not how it works. So you are a freelance editor and writer. Indeed. And are you working on something right now, a writing project? Yeah, I'm editing right now. So I tend to work with pastors who are writing kind of popular level stuff, um, you know, kind of leadership, pastoral type stuff. Uh, so that's sort of the bread and butter. I can always. What's uh, unpopular level stuff? 
unpopular level. Well, I don't do academic stuff, so that maybe that's unpopular. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, just like uh, just mostly nonfiction. Um, I occasionally do businessy stuff, but it's mostly churchy stuff. And I'm always looking for more work. It's been a it's been a little thin recently. So any listeners out there needing some help, just uh, just look me up. Nice, absolutely, absolutely, they can. And uh, but any project that you you want to write? I mean, I mean, this is I I mean I think this is a great book, and it's again it's a good cartography for the kind of uh, it kind of maps out I think the kind of misunderstandings and mischaracterizations of Jesus that really, I think can lead to some real spiritual maladies and exhaustion or both. But I mean, do you think about, okay, what would I write next? Like in light of this, in light of this book where I've sort of, you know, given my own journey, but again, in my own journey, offered a kind of roadmap for some other people as to where some of the swamps off the road to the real Jesus are. I mean, do you, what, what do you envision if you were going to write something else, what would it be? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think um, I've gotten that question a few times recently, and uh, I to kind of go back to this project, I, I've joked recently with friends um, and on a, on a recent podcast that I don't. There's sort of like some big picture stuff I didn't really discover until I was done with the project, which is um, I joke with people that I know are either just going to give a cursory look at the book or they're just not going to read it. You know, know, friends and family, you know, are never going to pick it up. But, you know, you just want to give them the the big overview. And uh, so I say, yeah, this is basically the spiritual component of a midlife crisis. Um, And I don't think... I don't think I realized that until I actually was holding it in my hand in print. I was like, what was that? What did I just write? And uh, that was sort of a discovery. So, you know, there's sort of a bum out factor to it. I think that that people who have kind of been through the ringer spiritually are feeling kind of beat up. They're going to resonate with it. And other people might think it's interesting. But, you know, if they're not in that place, they may, you know, who, who knows? Um, so the future project. Um, and I don't have anything specific in mind, but my, with that in mind, my hope is that it would be a little bit, uh, more upbeat, you know? Um, so I think I definitely resonate with like a kind of a low anthropology, um, uh, theologically speaking. Um, but, uh, yeah, I hope whatever that next writing project is, is that I'll push myself to be a little more upbeat maybe. Yeah, it's interesting though. Maybe do, do we need upbeat? Is upbeat just going to get people caught in the uh, treadmill of uh, over optimism? No. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, irrational optimism, right? Maybe I'll do. Uh, you know, you and I can partner together. We'll uh, put together a collection of jokes. We'll do a joke book. You I know, remember it. those? Remember those one hundred and one like tasteless jokes from the eighties? We could do something like that. I love it. Have you ever read Henri Nouwen's Life of the Beloved? I haven't. Tell me about it. It's a great book where he basically um, he's hanging around with some friend, this real cl- this close friend who's kind of a secular Jew, but very curious about his faith, and he wanted him to write a book for people like him. And it's a meditation on just a couple words like taken, blessed, broken, um, beloved, and it's interesting because he just kind of define. He's trying to flesh out what spirituality has meant based on those on those words, and it's very. 
I mean, it's funny though because it didn't have that much of a positive impact on his like, secular friends, but a lot of Christians loved it. And I think the same thing yeah. about like Frederick Schleiermacher when he wrote his speeches for religion's culture despisers, targeted at his sort of secular romanticist kind of um, salon type of crown Berlin. They didn't really get into it. Um, some of them did like what he did more in like his Christian faith later, but like his systematics. So it's just interesting. Somehow, like I think. Uh, sometimes our target, we misunderstand who we're communicating for all the time. I mean, preaching and writing. And I often wonder, you know, I, I just spend a lot of time thinking about who, who's hearing and to whom are we speaking and why and how. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you're talking about speaking to a more secular audience and, and sort of packaging not packaging but like articulating this the hope that we have in a way that they can understand that isn't like super like churched up or whatever what what do you think are good examples of that you know it's interesting i heard tim keller speak at princeton recently um and he was talking about leslie newbegin and he said how basically a missionary encounter is not traditional apologetics and he said look you know, some traditional apologetics I still like. You know, he talked about N.T. Wright in the Resurrection of the Son of God. and But he said, you know, a missionary encounter is St. Augustine's City of God where he gets into the culture's longings and explains why on their own grounds they sort of um, short-circuit themselves. And that really it, it's only in the revelation of the God who calls the pilgrims to the city of God, that human fulfillment is found. And I think about that, like spending, I think Paul's all is good at this. Like, I mean, to some degree, you know, um, and he always says that we need more theological psychologists or like psychological theologians. He's quoting Aldous Huxley there. And I think that, that there's probably something to that. Like that, mm-hmm. I mean, Nietzsche, right. Like his, like everything he's almost always right about his foresight. Like he said, you know, psychology would replace theology as the queen of the sciences and it has and and so how do we sort of take that seriously as we think about and 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 the kind of hermeneutic you know the kind of picture of jesus in the christian life you lay out in this book i think is is incredibly well suited to that right uh, because it's so much of it plays on our inner dialogues you know oh for sure yeah, yeah, totally. And I, it's funny when I first started reading um, Paul Zoll's uh, Grace and Practice, that was a game changer too for me. And uh, he really talks about that psych- psychological aspect of, of sort of the law gospel distinction. And because I was in a little bit more of like a, uh, I don't know, fundamentalist minded um, community at the time, I was like, well, where can this be proven in scripture? You know, I don't know if I quite see it. <laughs> and that, and that's where I kind of needed proof and I sort of struggled with it. But over the years, like I've, I've really found there's like that, it's like the dynamic, the dynamic of law and gospel. I think that if you take away the, the churchy theological language from it, the dynamic of what happens there is something that everybody can understand. Oh, it's totally, like, oh, it's totally, yeah, absolutely. Right? And this is why people like Brene Brown. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. That's like striking a nerve for people. And that's because these are, you know, again, like the, the law is entirely intuitive. Everybody knows what punishment and reward is about and why it works that way. It's just built into the universe, you know, 
But then to have a second word, to have the gospel, you know, something that is hopeful and isn't dependent on what you're doing, you know, uh, uh, Paul, Paul's all talks about that, you know, the one way love idea. It's like, it's not asking for anything of you. It's just pure love coming at you. That is so counterintuitive and just blows people's worlds apart, you know? Um, well, for and, folks, yeah, for folks to get a better sense of it, um, there's no better place they could go than to your book. And it's great. Cause it's, it's not a, a hard read, but it's not, but it, it's deep. You know I mean? It's not like you could read this without a bunch of theological training or something. You, you'd benefit from it if you had theological training, but you could also give this to anybody. And I think they would get a big picture about how Jesus really meets the deepest real human needs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for the feedback. That, that's what I was going for. The first draft was, uh, was a little bit too heady. And then I realized once I tried to simplify the writing a little bit more, it, it, um, it seemed to work better. So I'm glad that it, I'm hoping that it hits a target there. Well, like George Bush on the aircraft carrier, man, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thanks for, um, thanks for spending some time. I'm um, talking with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And we'll do it again. Let's do it. We're going to, we're going to write that joke book. Exactly. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do get Matt's book, Getting Jesus Wrong. It's a great book. And he's a great guy. And until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>